The following is from the conference and U.S. support for Israeli apartheid. All conference information is available at www.israelapartheidcon.org. Scott Horton is the um, editorial director of antiwar.com. Uh, he is the host of Antiwar Radio on Pacifica. 90.7 FM, KPFK, Los Angeles, and podcasts from scotthorton.org. And he's also the director of the Libertarian Institute. And Scott has conducted more than 5,400 interviews since 2003. Uh, his 2017 book, which you should definitely pick up is titled Fool's Errand, Time to End the War on Afghanistan. And his new book is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. So I want to thank Scott for being such a good sport and pinch hitter here. And take it away, Scott. Hi, uh, thank you very much for having me, everybody. Uh, really appreciate you. Uh, you can hear me okay? Everything's all right? A okay. Okay, good video. All right. Um, so uh, listen, I have a lot to talk about, and I have to kind of do it uh, in fast-forward mode here to uh, tell a story in a short amount of time. This is a lot to do with the story of my book, although only part of it. Um, but it's essentially the story of Israel's beef with Iran and then therefore the American neoconservatives and the Israel lobbies beef with Iran, which has a lot to do, a lot to do, not everything, but a lot to do with American policy towards Iran now. So obviously, as probably anybody uh, familiar enough with these topics to be watching this knows, the big problem started in 1979 when the uh, popular revolution in Iran overthrew the government of the Shah Reza Pahlavi that the Americans had reinstalled as dictator in a coup in 1953. And he was dying of cancer and his regime was falling apart. And the Carter government actually gave the French the green light on bad advice from the CIA and State Department to let the Ayatollah Khomeini get on a plane and go back to Iran to inherit the revolution. And he did. And, you know, I think this is really important. And it almost always goes unsaid. Maybe people all know this, and that's why it goes unsaid. But I kind of don't think so. Popular memory blurs the Iranian revolution together with the hostage crisis at the embassy, which, of course, was the disaster that destroyed Jimmy Carter's presidency and the rest. But in fact, the original revolution was in February of 1979. And all throughout 1979, the Americans were actually still talking with the Iranian government, the Ayatollah's government. And they were passing him intelligence about threats from Iraq and from the Soviet Union, or at least, you know, possible threats from them at the time, and as well as working with them on uh, projects in Afghanistan. But then what happened was David Rockefeller convinced Jimmy Carter to let the Shah into the United States for cancer treatment in November. And that was seen in Iran as a signal that they were going to essentially do another coup and cancel the revolution and overthrow the new government. And that, of course, caused the riot 
and the seizing of the hostages. So I'm not justifying, I'm just explaining what happened there so that people understand. But it goes to show that the Americans were, they had lost their client state, but the new regime was still seen as acceptable and as uh, people the Americans could work with. And of course, the Israelis never broke with the Iranians after the revolution. And when America backed the Iraqi side in the Iran-Iraq war throughout the 1980s, the Israelis famously backed the Iranian side and um, were the cutouts, in fact, during Iran-Contra when America switched sides and started backing the Iranians. They sold extra weapons to the Israelis, and then the Israelis sold their stocks on to the Iranians as you know for deniability in that project. It wasn't really until the 1990s, and this this story is best told, of course, by the great Trita Parsi in his book Treacherous Alliance, uh, the true relationship between the United States, Israel, and Iran, or the secret history, or something like that. Anyway, um, where what happened was. Uh, the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin wanted to change the strategy, the overall Israeli uh, posture in the region, from the periphery strategy, which had it that they wanted to prioritize allying with Iran, Turkey, and Ethiopia in order to uh, divide their closer Arab enemies' flanks, essentially, to have them uh, you know, divided with adversaries on both sides instead of being able to con- concentrate on them. And Rabin wanted to change that strategy. He had what is, I think, you know, uh, people should know is not a true plan for a Palestinian state, but as close as the Israelis ever were going to get to granting one, it would have been Bantu stands and unrecognizable as a real state, but much better than the current situation for sure back then. And so in trying to deal with the uh, Arabs, he decided to... Uh, reverse the periphery strategy and go ahead and target Iran and uh, and also for public relations reasons so that when people complained that he was giving up the West Bank, he could say, yeah, but the threat from Iran means we have to deal with the Arabs. But then a settler killed Rabin and he was replaced uh, quickly by Perez and then Netanyahu. And for all the prime ministers since, the position has not been, yeah, let's give up the West Bank, but we'll demonize Iran while we give up any of the West Bank. Instead, it's demonize Iran in order to distract from the colonization of the West Bank and essentially the facts on the ground fait accompli of the total annexation of all of the rest of historic Palestine, the last 22% uh, there. And so um, and that's been the policy all the way through. And so, and it, it's really actually, uh, I really highly recommend Trita Parsi's book, Treacherous Alliance, on this, because it's quite humorous. When the Israelis turn on this, they come to the Clinton administration in early 93, it's, or halfway through 93 or something, and they're saying, okay, well, we hate Iran now, and we want you to hate Iran now. And the, uh, the Clinton government was considering starting to warm up to, I think Johnny was already the new president by then. Uh, who was seen as more moderate and could be negotiated with or something. And the Clinton administration guys were just laughing and incredulous that, what, are you guys kidding? Because it was such an obvious cynical turn on a dime. It wasn't anything the Iranians had done. It was just a change in strategy in Tel Aviv was all. And then 
Iranian support for Hamas, for example, comes later. Um, but anyway, um, so uh, now on the question of war with Iran, you know, from the very beginning, it was pretty much out of the question that even the United States would attack Iran after the revolution. Of course, the Soviet Union was still around then. But when the war on terrorism began, Ariel Sharon told George W. Bush, don't go to Iraq, go to Iran first. And Bush said, no, I don't want to. I want to go to Iraq. And he said, okay, well, go to Iran next then. And Bush said, we'll see. But it was really Netanyahu and his faction of Likud. J.J. Uh, Goldberg wrote about this in depth in the foreword, that it was really Netanyahu and his group that really wanted to go to Iraq first. But it was Netanyahu and his group who had a much more close uh, relationship with the American neoconservative movement uh, than Ariel Sharon. And Sharon quickly got on board for the program. Uh, for the war anyway, uh, with Iraq. But uh, the the major point I'm trying to make here is you can't attack Iran. It's just too big. Now, we could have, um, you know, some kind of air war, but we'd have to be willing to lose a lot of planes to their anti-aircraft and a lot of special operations forces in any attempt to take out all that anti-aircraft. No one's ever even talking about beginning to consider a land invasion like Normandy or anything like that. But you can't get a regime change from the air and you can't have a successful air war without, with Iran without them retaliating against the United States. People are familiar with that funny map of why did Iran put their country near all our military bases? And it shows all our bases surrounding them. But the point is, too, is our guys are kind of hostage to them at the same time. So if a real war with Iran began... We have American GIs in Iraq and Kuwait, uh, still in Afghanistan, and of course, all up and down the Gulf. We have the massive air base in Qatar that's the home of Central Command um, and uh, the Air Force in the region. And then in Bahrain is the home of the Navy's Fifth Fleet, which all of which are, uh, you know, within medium, short and medium uh, missile range of Iran. And so, Ultimately, could the United States defeat Iran in a war if it came to a real war? Yes, of course. But the point being only at very high cost and a cost the Americans are not willing to pay. And uh, for a very good reason, because they got no real reason for war in the first place, other than this resentment against the Iranians for declaring independence from us so long ago. Now, in the 1990s, the um, Israelis... You know, and it is true that all through the 1980s that Iran did back uh, Hezbollah and other Shiite militias uh, during Israel's occupation of Lebanon. And so they have a beef there. And in the mid-1990s, while the neoconservatives were out of power, their major concern uh, from Israel's perspective when they took it was Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And as they said, um, Syria was the keystone in the arc of power from Iran through Syria and into southern Lebanon, and they wanted to break that. And in 1996, when Netanyahu came to power, the very influential neoconservative David Wormser wrote three papers or two two papers in a book, and uh, all in concert with Richard Pearl. And the first one signed also by Douglas Fife. Uh, famously, it should be famous anyway. Uh, the first one is titled A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. And it was written for an Israeli think tank as advice to Netanyahu. And 
the follow-up is coping with crumbling states, a strategy for the Levant. And uh, I'm, I flubbed the subhead there, but pretty close. Um, a new Israeli strategy for the Levant, something like that. And then the book is called Tyranny's Ally, is the full version of this. And basically what it is, is the neoconservatives are as foolish as uh, they are deadly in their uh, will to power here. Uh, They had essentially been convinced of this harebrained scheme that if they would get rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who was the Ayatollah's enemy, who just fought an eight-year war and was a Sunni dictator sitting on a minority Sunni uh, kind of ruling caste dictatorship over the population, the, the supermajority Shiite Arab population of his country, 60%, um, that if they got rid of him, that that would weaken Iran. Because uh, what would happen would be the king of Jordan, either he or his cousin would become the king of Iraq, like in the 20s under the British, the Hashemite kingdom would be restored. And then don't worry, because our friend Ahmed Chalabi, the Iraqi exile, convicted embezzler, uh, tinker and spy, uh, he assures us that the Iraqi Shiites, they just love being told what to do by anybody who claims to have the blood of the prophet Muhammad, like the Hashemites do. And so then once the king of Jordan takes over, and later, of course, Chalabi himself became the, the man uh, in the plan to uh, sit in the chair. Uh, once that happens, then the uh, Jordanians will have total dominance over Iraq, and they will use their pressure on the Shiite clergy in the city of Najaf in the Iraqi south, who are really the real leaders of Shiite Islam in the world where the Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani lives, who outranks even the Ayatollah Khamenei in Iran, uh, supposedly in religious rank. And what we'll do is uh, the, the, they'll love to be told by the Hashemite king now that what they need to do is intervene in Lebanon. And they need to tell Hezbollah to stop listening to Iran and listen to them instead and be friends with Israel and Jordan and the new Jordanian Iraq. And then everything will be great. And then, uh, and all of this so that they don't have to go along with Oslo and they don't have to give up the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. It's a clean break from the policy of appeasing the Arab enemies and instead achieving a position of total dominance in the region. And then whatever crumbs the Palestinians are left, they'll be happy with because there will be no one there to take their side. Well, this whole thing is completely crazy and stupid, right? So the Hashemites have uh, nothing to do with Shiite Islam at all. And the uh, part of Muhammad's family that the Shiites revere are not the Hashemite line at all. It's a totally separate uh, faction dating to the foundation of the split between the Sunnis and Shias back 1300 years ago. And, um, And so... The idea, in fact, if you go back to the 1920s, the Shiites had a fatwa that forbid any God-fearing Shiite from cooperating with the Hashemite kingdom in any way whatsoever. It helped lead to the downfall of the uh, Israel, um, pardon me, the uh, British uh, monarchy there. And so um, 
Now, these are the very same men who were the ringleaders of the neoconservative movement in the George W. Bush government that got us into Iraq War II in 2003 through 2011. And David Wormser and Richard Pearl and Douglas Fife, very prominent among them. But this was essentially the plan. Ahmed Chalabi assures us it's going to be great. And then, of course, his group were the same ones that furnished the lies to get us into the war about the weapons of mass destruction and the ties to Al-Qaeda and the rest. So um, now, so everybody knows that Iraq War II was a mess and a lot of people got killed and whatever it was supposed to achieve, it didn't work. But it's pretty complicated about what really was the result. And during the war, they never explained they never said, okay, we're fighting for the shirts against the skins, and here's why, and here's what it means. They never explained who was who in the war. They only said it was the good guys versus the terrorists, and that's all we need to know. Those who want democracy versus those who are trying to thwart it, right? But what essentially had happened was Bush put America on the side of Iran in the great schism in the Middle East. The American Sunni axis of power is the United States and Israel with Turkey, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the rest of the Arab states. Yemen's a bit more complicated. Uh, I hope we'll have time to get to that in a minute. Um, but uh, this is the American alliance system. The Iranian axis is Iran, uh, you know, Tehran, Damascus, Syria, and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And now they like to try to include the Houthis uh, down in Yemen too, which is a bit gratuitous, if you ask me. Uh, and and uh, anyway, so what Bush did, all he did in that whole messy war that everybody knows directly and indirectly cost the lives of approximately a million people, raised that entire society to the ground, led to a whole new war, Iraq War Three, just a few years later. And all of this was that Bush moved Baghdad from the Sunni side of the ledger to the Iranian side. And by that, I mean, he helped the Shiites accomplish a massive sectarian cleansing campaign where they turned Iraq from an extremely mixed city into something like an 85 to 90% Shiite one and achieved total dominance, not just for the Shiites. And in fact, not for the Shiites, the people of the country, but for certain political parties and factions uh, most notably the Supreme Islamic Council and the Dawa Party, both of whom were the closest to Iran, had fled to Iran in 1980 and had taken Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq War. And then they inherited all of the power in 2003. To go back to 1991 in the aftermath of Iraq War I, when the massive Shiite uprising took place, the Bush senior government encouraged it and then betrayed it. And the reason why is because these same groups had been coming across the border. The Supreme Islamic Council, their militia, the Bada Brigade, was coming to take charge of the revolution. And they said, oh, no, we just supported Saddam Hussein for eight years to contain the Iranian revolution. Now we're importing it. And they called it off, and 100,000 people were massacred in Hussein's uh, successful uh, crushing of the insurrection. Now, 12 years later, W. Bush is just picking up exactly where his father left off and put those same groups of people in power. Now, of course, this also meant pushing the Sunnis into a terrible insurgency against the American and Shiite alliance at the time, 
and into the arms of the newly created Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which had never existed before the war. In fact, Zarqawi didn't declare his allegiance to bin Laden until after the Second Battle of Fallujah in November of 2004. But that, of course, uh, was a major crisis. But here's what happened then. In 2005, at the very end of 2005, really, beginning of 2006, neoconservative policy advisor Zalmay Khalilzad, along with Elliot Abrams and a couple of others in the government, essentially came to Bush. I don't know exactly the anecdote. But essentially, they came to Bush and said, listen, we really have screwed up here. And we really have taken the side of these parties are going to be closer friends with Iran than they are going to be with us at the end of all of this. And we really messed up and, you know, somebody else's fault. But, hey, here we are. So now what? And so what happened was they launched a policy called the redirection. And I encourage everyone to read this great article by Seymour Hirsch. Read it twice. Laugh and cry. It's just incredible. And the story is that they're doing a big bait and switch. The enemy is no longer bin Laden and Zarqawi and the bin Laden and Zarqawiites. Now the problem is Iran because you know what? Forget Sunni and Shia and forget who's America's enemies and who's Israel's enemies. You know, the problem here is moderates versus extremists. And so now they can, this is Condoleezza Rice talking. So now they can just use finger paint and just smear all these concepts together and, and make a mess out of it all and confuse the issue. And so it turns out that, you know what, it's not the bin Ladenites that are the problem. It's the Iranian crescent, as they call it, uh, which the King of Jordan didn't even coin that phrase until after Bush invaded Iraq and he saw it coming. But anyway, so this then explains the mystery of the 2000 teens. Why in the world did the Barack Obama government take the side of Al-Qaeda in Syria? And the answer is because of this same redirection policy. He's not a secret Muslim from Kenya and all of this stuff. He's George W. Bush. And this was a policy that Bush had started in 2006, where Khalil Zad went to the Saudi king and said, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you're right. And it's in the WikiLeaks. Thank you so much to Chelsea Manning and to Julian Assange uh, for the WikiLeaks, where we know that the king said to Khalil Zad, it used to be us and you and Saddam Hussein against Iran. Now you've given Iraq to Iran on a golden platter. Now, what are you going to do about it? And Khalil Zad essentially says, we're at your service, your majesty, we're going to fix it. And so, and of course, this also coincides very well with uh, Israel's policy too. Is somehow we have to make up for this. And so um, in Iraq, they launched the awakening where they essentially bribed the tribes to finish betraying the jihadists who they were, had already turned on. In fact, Petraeus was just racing to get at the front of that uh, parade. But that was the miracle of the Iraq war was that the local Sunni tribal leaders eliminated the worst of the jihadists and the foreign fighters who would travel there, the Saudis and Egyptians who would come to fight and all of that, and just eliminated the problem that Bush had created and that they had helped create there. Thousands of jihadists just ceased to exist. Um, not that the Americans got them, but that their former allies in the Sunni militias had. And so, but in, uh, as Hirsch reports in a, a series of articles from 2007, uh, they started backing Fatah al-Islam in Lebanon, to attack Hezbollah and started backing Muslim Brotherhood groups in Syria and Jandala, a very dangerous uh, bin Ladenite terrorist group in the Baluchistan region 
of Iran in their southeast, they're adjacent to Pakistan. And uh, so this was the policy that Obama picked up. And now the Libya war was also somewhat at Saudi behest, although that wasn't part of their anti-Iranian strategy. They just hated Gaddafi anyway, um, you know, for all of his insults over the years and betraying them on uh, business deals and the rest. Um, but then they took the jihadists and David Petraeus was the head of CIA by then. They took the jihadists and the guns from Libya and they sent them on to Syria. And at the time, it was clear from 2011 on, the reason we want to do this is to weaken Iran. You know what? Somehow, some way, we're not sure whose fault it is, but they've increased their power in the region by a few hundred percent in the last couple of years here. And so if, if we just put them up two pegs, we got to figure out a way to take them down a peg. And in fact, in um, April, pretty sure March or April of 2012, uh, Barack Obama, or it was published in, 2000, uh, in, in March or April 2012, an Atlantic interview with Barack Obama, where Jeffrey Goldberg says, isn't it true? Don't you think that if we got rid of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, that that would be a great way to weaken Iran? And Obama says, absolutely. And so Goldberg says, well, what can we do to hurry that process along? And he says, well, I can't tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Essentially, he says, you don't have a classified clearance high enough, so I can't let you in on it. But essentially admitting that they already had a covert operation underway to help supply these militants. And it's true that Obama was reluctant to carpet bomb Damascus and really overthrow Assad. But at the same time, he authorized the CIA to coordinate the Saudis, the Qataris, the Turks, the Jordanians. And I don't know if they were coordinating with the Israelis, but the Israelis were certainly in on it too. Uh, for all of these years, in fact, as Asa Wynn Stanley has documented probably better than anyone in the world, uh, by the way. Um, and and they took a, the side essentially of, as the U.S. government themselves said, and get this, it was Victoria Nuland, Robert Kagan's wife, the, one of the major neoconservative ringleaders, uh, working for Hillary Clinton. It's her name on the State Department press release that says, you know, it's true that Jabhat al-Nusra is just an alias for al-Qaeda in Iraq. They are what's left over from Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's group. And so, you know what we're doing? We're backing everybody but them on their same side of the war, right? Which is like saying, uh, like if the French and the British had intervened in the American Civil War, and they had said, well, we're backing Georgia and South Carolina, but not Virginia. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not exactly how this works. Um, so uh, the problem with that is by 2013, the Iraqi dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq split from the Syrian dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and decided that rather than focusing uh, all of their forces anyway on moving west toward Damascus, that instead they'd go ahead and carve out a state there in the east of Syria, excluding, they wanted to include, eventually including Kurdistan and Syria's northeast there. And they seized the city of Raqqa, which is really kind of centrally, central north located, but they call it the east because the vast majority of the cities in Syria are in the west. Anyway, and they seized essentially half of the country and carved out a state. And then one year later, they rolled right into western Iraq and they essentially seized all of it, uh, all of predominantly Sunni Western Iraq, Mosul, Baji, Tikrit, Samarra, and Fallujah, and then eventually Ramadi as well. 
and created the caliphate. Uh, their new leader, Baghdadi, declared himself the Caliph Ibrahim and, and declared that the Sykes-Picot border between Syria and Iraq was hereby abolished and erased. And this was the new uh, caliphate. So uh, Obama let them stew for a couple of months and uh, let them, you know, beg and, and come to us. Again, still trying to split them off from Iran and, and make the Iraqi government feel like they need us more than they need the Iranians, which never works and certainly didn't again. And so, and then the Iranians themselves came across the border to help in the effort. And so uh, you can read, it's in the book, I got the quotes where the Americans admit that they're flying as Iran's air force in the battle of Tikrit, not just Iranian backed Shiite militias in a syllogism, but no, actually the Iranian Quds Force is down there leading the command in the battle for Tikrit and we're flying as their air cover. And then there's also quotes from the Iranians saying, we got to admit the American air power sure did help out. <laughs> and so there they are fighting Iraq war three in 2014, 15, 16, 17, in order to, uh, uh, for the same, for the very same factions that they wish they hadn't fought Iraq war two for. And that was the reason that they had backed these terrorist groups against Assad in the first place was to spite these Shiites. And then, but it blew up in their face so badly with the caliphate that they had to fight a whole other war for them, uh, leading not just Iraq, but Syria as well to be more dependent on Iran than ever before. And so now they say we can't leave Iraq or Syria because our men are standing uh, at the Al-Tamp uh, military base there on the border, they are standing guard at the land bridge, as they call it, otherwise known as a road that runs essentially unbroken now through from Tehran through Baghdad and through to Damascus and on to Beirut. And so we can't just let um, the Iranians have all this free reign. So now we're right back where we started from, only instead of having Saddam Hussein standing as the big roadblock here, uh, now the Americans and the Israeli-inspired strategy here uh, to do all of this has only increased their power and influence in the region that much more. And now I, I figure we don't have time to talk about Yemen, but just put my name in Yemen in YouTube and you'll see some things there. Um, in fact, at, at youtube.com slash Scott Horton show, if you click on playlists there, you'll find a thing about Yemen. That's my best take on it other than in the book. Um, but let me talk about the nuclear program here real quick. Uh, do I have time, Grant, to do like five minutes on the nuclear program and the, and the deal? Yeah, five minutes and then we'll go right to questions. Okay, great. So um, here's the deal with the nuclear program. If you want to be as cynical as you can about it, be charitable to the hawks here, okay? It's a latent nuclear deterrent, right? Just like Japan has. That we're not making nukes, but everybody knows we know how to make nukes, and everybody knows we know how to enrich uranium and uh, have the capability to do so. So don't try us, and then we won't escalate to that next step. That's essentially what they have been attempting to achieve this whole time, and they have achieved it. And so, in truth, they have a civilian safeguarded nuclear program. The Iranians have been members of the non-proliferation treaty all along uh, since during the Shah's days um, when I guess it was Johnson and Nixon who got them to sign it. And uh, they, that means under the NPT, that means they have to have a deal called a safeguards agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency 
which allows them to inspect all nuclear facilities to guarantee the non-diversion of nuclear material to any military or other special purpose. And they've had that deal all along. But as they've steadily increased their nuclear program, the Israelis especially, and their amen corner in America, have hyped up this threat of an Iranian nuclear weapons program. In the Bush years especially, they made it sound as though they never heard of the Nonproliferation Treaty. They'd never heard of the IAEA and these inspections at all. And they would just say that the civilian nuclear program is a nuclear weapons program. Or alternatively, they'd say, well, there's a secret nuclear weapons program, an illicit one, and the one that we all know about and that's inspected, that doesn't count because there must be another one somewhere because we say so. And that was really the reason for, and that really lasted in, you know, through the Obama years. And even though the CIA had debunked that in 2007, and the Israeli Mossad had agreed that it is true, we, we do agree with the CIA's assessment that they're really not making nukes. Um, of course, political leaders on both sides ignored those conclusions, but the intelligence agencies conceded that, that they had not made the decision to begin to pursue a nuclear weapon. The narrative in large measure still held. And the idea was that there was a real threat that the Israelis could get us into a war. And they had a massive assassination campaign uh, in the early Obama years against Iranian scientists and including even killing a graduate student. And um, they were, you know, leaking. They were, they were doing practice runs on Cyprus and this kind of thing, um, and, or in the Mediterranean, I think, in Cyprus. Uh, and they were essentially threatening to start a war and drag America into it. And Obama, I think this is probably really just a feint, but Obama took it seriously enough that he decided the NPT wasn't good enough. He was going to get John Kerry to pass uh, to, you know, to uh, agree to this deal with the Iranians. It's called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal. And essentially what it does is on America's side, it promises to lift the sanctions and it gave them some of their own money back. All those pallets of cash that Trump and, and all of his people went on and on about. That was Iranian money that Jimmy Carter had stolen back in 1979. And imagine John Kerry. I hate to give John Kerry credit, but John Kerry's deal was we'll give you your own money back that we took, but not one red cent more than that. And they accepted that. That's pretty good. And sanctions relief. Just we'll stop blockading you. If, uh, you know, virtually blockading you, if you uh, do what we say. So American, what America had to give up on our side of the deal was nothing. Okay. What the Iranians had to give up was they had to pour concrete into their rock, uh, heavy water reactor, essentially ruining it, destroying it, disabling it forever. And they had to uh, reduce the number of centrifuges they were spinning at their Natanz facility. They had to convert their Fordo, a.k.a. Com facility there um, uh, under the mountain into strictly a research facility with no actual production of uranium enrichment going on there. And they had to expand their inspections far beyond any other inspection regime in world history to include their mines and the facilities where they actually make the centrifuges and everything else. In other words, locking down their program guaranteeing its civilian nature and then promising essentially to back off only on the other side. And that's why when Donald Trump and his partisans said, this is the worst deal ever, the worst deal ever, they never said why they can only say, well, cause it doesn't include missiles and it doesn't include 
stopping financing Hezbollah or something like that. But of course, that's not what it was about. It was just about supposedly the threat of nuclear weapons. And in fact, you know, one side issue here about Yemen is the Obama government said this is why they helped the Saudis start the war in Yemen. It was to make up for the fact that we were passing this nuclear deal, that we were negotiating with the Iranians. It made the Saudis feel very threatened that they were going to lose their place in our order, that maybe America would start tilting back toward Iran again, which was never in the cards. This was just taking the threat of war off the table is all it was. And uh, But they said, you know what? To, to reassure you that you are still number one to us, Saudi Arabia will help you launch a war of genocide against these people in Yemen just because a Shiite group came to power that were friends, not even at that time really allies uh, with Iran. And again, this is another policy that after six years has only increased Iran's power and influence in Yemen uh, far more than ever before and at the cost of hundreds of thousands of lives, probably near a million by the time they're done counting the dead there. Um, and so then now there's currently a threat, uh, as the Biden administration, they came into power with all these sanctions that the Trump government had put on, and they thought they had this position of leverage and the Iranians are going to do what they say, but that never works. But at least the Biden people were smart enough to realize that by spring, you know, I don't know, snow starting to melt, Blinken gets it through his head. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and so they start having these meetings in Vienna, but what it is, is the Americans and the Iranians won't talk to each other. I think the Iranians are willing to, but they instead they got the Europeans. And this was actually, they thought of this in the deal. They made it this way in the deal. So we could have the Europeans be the independent referees and try to coordinate how we can get back into the deal. And as of right now, the Americans are insisting on holding on to the sanctions in such a way that uh, it seems, I mean, you would think, that with the momentum that they have, they just go ahead and re-sign the deal however they have to do it, figure it out and get it signed. But it seems like they quite possibly are sabotaging their project here. And I mean, after all, these, these are all men from Obama's government that are leading Biden's government right now. This is their nuclear deal. And they are threatening to destroy it. They're threatening to ruin the thing. And, okay. um, and so that is... Could, really could lead to war. And you have the Israelis also doing the sabotage campaign inside Iran to try to make it politically difficult for them. And you have elections upcoming in Iran very soon where you could have the hard right who refuses to negotiate with the Americans come back into power. So even though we really don't have anything to fight about, those are all negatives that, you know, could really lead to a crisis. It's possible. Yes. Great. Appreciate the uh, reference to the kind of founding doctrine of the clean break plan. And uh, I think we got time for a lightning round of questions, kind of short answer here before we uh, queue up uh, Alex Awad. And a couple that came in, um, if you can just address these really quickly, uh, Jeff asked, can you speak about our impending withdrawal from Afghanistan and its impact on the rest of the Middle East? Is that going to have a major effect? And then another quick response to what was the role of the late Iranian general Qasem Soleimani in all of this? Mm. I'll, I'll do that one first, since it's uh, still on topic there. Um, he was accused, uh, probably correctly, of having a lot of influence in Iraq War II over these uh, Iranian parties. You know, the Iranians said, look, Bush, we'll work with you 
you want to get rid of Saddam for us and put our parties in power, our friends in power, let's work together. And the Bush people refused to talk to them the whole time while still putting their guys in power, uh, or at least their, their friends in power. And so um, it was Soleimani certainly had a role in making sure that Muqtada al-Sadr, who is one, and, and not just him, but uh, and, and Sadr and other major Shiite leaders, that they stood by their firm position that the Americans have to go and that there is no compromise and we will not sign the status of forces agreement. We will not allow you to stay. Thank you for putting us in power. Now there's the door. Don't let it hit you in the ass on the way out kind of situation. And so, um, you know, that was certainly part of it. Now at the time that they killed him, I think he probably was feeling pretty favorable about the United States. And so we, since we had fought two wars for him by that time. Uh, although I'm being facetious because of course uh, he had to take the side against the CIA and Al Qaeda in Syria. But um, it's alleged that at the time that he was assassinated in uh, January of 2020, that he was trying to negotiate a deal to find uh, leadership in Iran that America and in, in Iraq that America and Iran could both agree on. And in fact, he had done that in the past. You know, he had indirectly, I don't think they ever directly talked about it, but they had essentially agreed on um, the prime ministers of Iraq before, Jafari and Maliki. They'd been chosen by Zalmay Khalilzad, um, the American uh, neoconservative Mandarin. Uh, But, you know, these were kind of compromises with the Iranians about, who's acceptable to both. And um, so there was certainly no reason to think that uh, he was directing Shiite militias in Iraq to attack U.S. troops there. Uh, you know, they, they claim that, but they've never proven that at all. And in fact, made perfect sense that it could have been ISIS right. firing rockets at American bases, trying to cause division between their two primary enemies, the Shiites and the Americans. Um, and they could easily provoke a conflict like that. As far as Afghanistan, I mean, apparently they are pulling out heavy equipment. They just kicked the can down the road a few months, but there's real movement going on there. And it seems like Biden is is insisting on a withdrawal. However, that leaves open, and this is in the New York Times and all the major papers. They're talking about it already, that we're not leaving. And there's a piece by, um, or uh, I forget who it was, but uh, there's a piece just yesterday about Special Operations Forces, CIA, and contractors are going to stay and bombers are going to stay. We're going to have massive air power. They're going to figure out if they can put it in Tajikistan or Kazakhstan, or if they're just going to, I don't know if they're just going to, can they just do F, uh, uh, 18s from carriers in the, in the uh, Indian ocean over the mountains? And so no, it's no withdrawal. Okay. Dale, have we got anything else coming through on uh, email before we move on to Alex Awad or a quick question uh, that can maybe serve as a segue to Alex Awad, and that's just sort of about anti-war movement on the right these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the right seems to be more anti-war these days, but also has that hawkishly pro-Israel and anti-Iran sort of sentiment. How do you see that evolving over time? It seems incongruent to sort of be against war, but also be hawkish on these two uh, topics in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, that really is the problem with the right is... It's it's like uh, going to the drive-in on Friday night. It's fun to be scared, 
it's fun to have an enemy. It's fun to, you know, go and blow up stuff. I used to be a 14 year old. So uh, I supported Iraq war one for those same reasons that, you know, explosions and supersonic jets and cool things. And the right is extremely susceptible to that and to the demonization of Iranians or Arabs or the Chinese or the Russians or whoever. Um, And so, you know, at the same time, though, it's their sons who got to fight in this stuff. Um, I mean, it's true also that a lot of blacks and Hispanics on, you know, who probably vote Democratic uh, fight in these wars, too. But at least in terms of the white majority that fight in the war, it's not liberals who send their sons to fight in these wars. And when it's been 20 years of this and you've had millions of men literally go to Iraq and Afghanistan and back. And there's just so much anti-war sentiment among them. And, you know, another major thing is that of all the people in the national government, the military men, I don't know so much of the officers, but maybe them, but certainly the enlisted guys, they take their oath to the Constitution really seriously because they're putting their life on the line. And that's just kind of a checkbox for federal employees to get their job. But to the military guys, that really means something. But everybody knows the Constitution says only Congress can declare war. And everybody knows that under a limited republic, the natural state of things is peace. And war is only the exception and an absolute emergency in order to protect our lives and our liberties. And we'll leave the imperialism to the old world. That's not for us. That's not what we're supposed to be about. And so you know, the, the constitution and the words of the founders stand in stark opposition to everything that's going on here. And then when you have somebody like Donald Trump necessarily denouncing George W. Bush's policy in order to win the nomination and the presidency, McCain and Romney ran on Bush's legacy and both went down in flames. And, um, he knew he had to denounce Bush and really he brought a lot of the right with him that, you know what, Maybe that was the worst decision any president ever made to go to the Middle East the way that he did. And if Donald Trump says it's true and a lot of soldiers seem to agree with him, then yeah. And right now there's a huge movement on led by bring our troops home.us and concerned veterans of America and uh, these other uh, groups who are pushing anti-war legislation and especially um, bring our troops home and young Americans for Liberty are pushing what's called the defend the guard legislation in the state legislatures and 30 states are introducing it this year um, in order to say that you, the federal government, the president cannot nationalize the state national guard troops unless they have an official declaration of war from the Congress, which of course they never will. And so this is a, a very powerful statement. If it came to a constitutional conflict, I guess we'd see, but this is a huge statement of, of, you know, these are conservative Republican right. uh, politicians in these state legislatures introducing this legislation, and it's making a real powerful effect already. Excellent. Well, we really want to thank you, Scott, for coming in, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and uh, making time for this. And we could just definitely go on the rest of the afternoon, but I, I thank you for uh, switching up.